thank you for staying back and uh, to want to walk the path to liberation. Uh, as Brother Jerry said, half of this uh, uh, congregation uh, will walk in front, closer to liberation. Maybe. And uh, in order to gain liberation, actually there's a lot of inspiration that we need. Dhamma cultivation requires a deeply seated inspiration. Dhamma is not something that is very worldly. In fact, it is unworldly. But because we live in a worldly existence, we are driven by ambitions, desires, sometimes not even our own ambitions. Tenghu and Bai. Arranged by bosses, arranged by our companies, arranged by our organizations. It's not that we have that kind of ambition, but we are driven by it and driven along. So we are just... Uh, you know, in the current of things. Dhamma is said to be against the current. So in order to keep to the path of Dhamma until its final destination, we need a lot of inspiration. One of the most inspiring things that I've witnessed uh, are those that went on pilgrimage. And after they come back from pilgrimage, if the pilgrimage were very well conducted. I wouldn't say well organized because what do you need to organize on a pilgrimage? The passage, accommodation, the uh, itinerary from one sacred place to another, and also the guide. So that can be very easily done. But a well conducted pilgrimage is not just about the itinerary, it's not just about the time spent at each place. Sometimes it is very rushed, so it's not a very good arrangement. But also the guide must not only give us the knowledge or the history, but also the Dhamma. So the well-conducted pilgrimage is uh, one of the most inspiring things that can keep many Buddhists on the uh, path of cultivation. So I'm very glad that uh, so many people have uh, stayed back to join this session, uh, which was requested by uh, Brother uh, Yu Tong. Uh, he came early in the year uh, with us to India, representing Singapore. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to invite Brother Yu Tong to talk about his experience. And uh, he has prepared all these slides, all these uh, uh, nice videos, which I don't know what pictures are there. I haven't seen it myself. So best if the author uh, talks about his experience. And uh, I'm around. If there's any need, uh, if you want to ask questions, please ask Yu Tong. <laughs> <laughs> so if any need, then I will, I will also uh, give my opinions. Right? So I pass to Brother Yu Tong with uh, uh, humility. Thank you, Brother Tang. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon, uh, brother and sister. Well, uh, Okay, my journey for the pilgrimage, I guess, started uh, in July 2013. That was about two and a half years ago. Uh, at that time, Brother Tan came to Singapore for the Buddhist conference. And he told me that uh, he intend to uh, go to India and uh, do a documentary. And then, out oh, in the lens, uh, just happily, I say, Brother Tan, do you think I can go with you? And he looked into me and say. Uh, you seriously want to go? I said, yeah, why not? Of course, uh, I heard that uh, you are the best tour guide. 
Well, this is what the Narayanan told me, you know. Uh, for Bharatan himself, he has gone to India for more than 10 times, maybe 11, 12 times to India, right? And he also shared a lot of story about India. So he said, okay, uh, he will check with the organizer and then he get back the answer and yes, you can go. Uh, the plan was to go in January 2014. So for me, I thought, okay, just go happily with him, you know. But then certain things happened, the trip has to postpone for another one year. So I said, wow, got to wait for one more year, long wait. So then I think, hey, maybe this is a good opportunity while waiting to go into India. Let me do a lot, uh, a bit of self-study, a lot of other research. At least when I go there, I'm not like Sotong when he said anything, I don't understand. So at least when he said something, I could, oh, okay, okay, this is where, what happened in India, this is what happened, uh, what Buddha said this in this particular place. So I spent about one year doing my own research study. But then uh, the day came in uh, January 2015, just beginning of this year. I went Brother Tan. Again, it's another eye-opening for me again. Whatever that I learned from a text, whatever that I learned is never enough. And when you go on the spot, it's so inspiring, especially with Brother Tan. He's so knowledgeable. He can even explain to you this brick, this stone, and you know, down to the detail of this brick is from which period, this stone is from which period. So I was so inspired and then of course I come back and do a lot more research. Uh, that trip, I think there's only about 14, 15 of us who went there. Uh, there are two videographers, professional videographers, uh, two photographers, two videographers and one uh, helicam grapher that uh, photographed uh, all this. I think the documentary is going to be out uh, probably in another six months to maybe a year. Initially, they thought it's a very easy job to be done. They can do it within like three months, four months. But as they start going to do it more and more, they realize that there are a lot more things. So similarly, as I go on and do a lot more research on my own, I find that there are a lot of things that's inadequate. And of course, I did ask Brother Tan permission to say, do you think I can lead the BF, the Singaporean, for a pilgrimage? Uh, maybe not this year, maybe next year. Right. The reason why I requested next year, December, is because so that we don't just go there as tourists. Right? Go there, look, see, look, see. A stone is a stone, a brick is a brick to most of us. But if you understand the history, the historical background, then things will come alive. When you go there, you can literally picture that, see the scene that's happened, like Buddha is giving a, a, a discourse or dispensation at that particular spot. And that kind of voices actually echo in your mind, right? So I requested Brother Tan and said, okay, uh, then maybe what we could do is that we can have a course conducted, maybe like a 10-session course, and then come here and then we share what we have. Those who, can, those who have been there before can also share their own experience. So a little bit of history, a little bit of introduction to the place. So when we go there, uh, we can do a lot more meditation and maybe a lot more Dharma talk rather than Brother Tan have to explain right, on the ground. Right, so I thought maybe this is a good time to share, and then we'll work with BF to see when it's a good date with Brother Tan together so as well, how many people going there. So I encourage all of you uh, who have not been there before, or who have even been there before, uh, maybe take this opportunity uh, to further our spiritual path. Right, so uh, the title of the talk today is called The Footstep of the Buddha. Right. So many times a lot of people thought 
India, Buddha from India, so the whole of India. But in actual fact, uh, Buddha area of operation is really focused in the northeast uh, of India, somewhere near to the Nepal, part of Nepal. We all know that he was born in Nepal. So when you go to Nepal, the Nepalese are very, very proud. They say, oh, Buddha, Buddha is a Nepalese, not an Indian. So we say, Buddha is born in India. No, 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 no. Buddha is not an Indian. Buddha is a Nepalese. This is what they will tell you when you talk to a Nepalese. Right? So they're very proud that oh, Buddha was born in Nepal. It's a Nepalese. So basically, Buddha's mode of operation is uh, in the northeast. He did go a bit further north, but most of the time he spent in this area. Right? We all know that he's born in Lubini, got enlightened in Bukaya, first sermon in uh, Sana, and then of course he passed away Parinibbana in Kusinaga. Right? And a lot of times he spent in Savati and Rajagaha. These are the two very rich place. He delivered a lot of discourse in Savati. Right? I think he spent almost his last 20-25 years in Savati. But not forgetting that he also spent a lot of number of years in Rajagaha. Right? <coughs> and then of course the world famous Nalanda right? and Vesali also as well. It's some places that he loved a lot. Right? So I'll share with you some of the photographs that was being taken there. And, okay? So basically for the pilgrimage trip, uh, it's a circuit, right? Uh, the last time we did was that we landed in Varanasi and we do a circuit round to Bogaya, right? We cannot go the places in sequence, but rather the, uh, not in the sequence of his birth and all this because they are all not well connected, but rather you go in a circuit to save time because it's only like uh, 14 weeks. So either people will do a circuit from Bogaya all the way to Sana. Okay, just to let you know the distance, uh, roughly from, from here, from let's say uh, Rajakaha, all the way to uh, Savati, is about 500 over km. This is about the distance in, in this direction here, right? This is about direction, probably about the size of, smaller than the size of West Malaysia. Okay, roughly about there. Okay? So in those days, Buddha walk, you know, there's no Mercedes, no Loschloy, no uh, uh, BMW, right? His only mode of op uh, transport is walking, right? So uh, if you will go to pilgrimage, most likely you will land in Bogaya and then up in uh, to north to Rajagaha. Rajagaha is, uh, of all the places, I love Rajagaha the most. Later I'll explain why. Okay. Uh, then of course you go further up to Pragna, uh, and then Visali, and then Kusinaga, his birthplace. You have to cross through the border to, uh, in, from India to Nepal. And then from Nepal back to India, and then to Savati, and then down to Sana. Okay. The whole journey talks about uh, for, for normal pilgrimage, it's about 14, 12 to 14 days. Uh, for the pilgrimage trip that I went with, Brother Tan, it's double the dosage. We went there for about 28 days. So uh, we spent a lot of time uh, because the crew need to take a lot of photographs and we do it slowly as well. As well right? <coughs> so why we need to 
do a lot of study. You can see that this is Bogaya, right? The Mahabodhi Temple, Bogaya. You can see that uh, this is what we will see today. Right? This is what we will see today. But when it was first discovered by the British or by, by the uh, Buddhists that went there in the 18th, 19th century, this is what they see. You see? So there are a lot of history there. A lot of times we just go there, we only appreciate the beauty of this. We never appreciate what actually transformed from this to this here. Right? So it's very important to say, okay, what actually, what was the background? Why we have today this Mahabodhi temple? What is the reason why? Why Buddhism <coughs> uh, was born in India, has its golden age right, in India, and from India spread to all over the world. But how did Buddhism actually land in such stage? Right? It's also something very interesting for us to know also as well. So we learn about Anicca. Even Buddhism itself in India has to undergo decline and almost disappear in India. And of course, in today, the population of Buddhists in India is less than 1%. And that's how it landed in this stage. And of course, how it transformed from this stage to this stage is also because of a lot of Buddhists from all over the world make an effort to revive Buddhism in India. Okay, so this is Bukaya. Now, uh, the Mahabodhi temple is a very, very beautiful temple. Right? You can see after all the restoration, there are a lot of very nice, beautiful, and every day people come in to do their offering, the flowers. You just sit there and observe. There are a lot of things to observe. Just sit there quietly and observe. Right? So beautiful. Okay. And because <coughs> here I took a picture of a monk. Uh, they came in about three or four of them. This uh, Thai, uh, probably for, foreign monk, Amor monk. They told us that they came here to do a retreat. So every day morning they come and sit. And to the end of the morning, about uh, five, six o'clock, they come and sit until about nine o'clock when the temple is closed. About three, four of them just sit there and meditate for their pilgrimage or for their retreat, they call it. Right? And of course, you can also see a lot of offering on the table as well. Right? And this is the Bodhi tree, right? Of course, this is not the original Bodhi tree that uh, Buddha sat under. It, it, was, it was destroyed a couple of times, and then this was uh, sapling from the original Bodhi tree. Right? You can see a lot of people doing the offerings. So it's a very nice place, a lot of place to contemplate also as well. Okay. Next, we move on to... Okay, there are still a lot of places in... Uh, Bokaya, but just doing a bit of sharing on it as well. We also go to uh, Prat Bodhi, which is the place where Buddha practiced his ascetic uh, for about six years. Right? We also go to Sujato village, the, the Naranjaran River, uh, and also the Gaya uh, Sisa, <coughs> whereby he converted the uh, Kasapa brother. So there are a lot of stories in Bukaya, but I just bring up only a part of it, right? And we can learn more, let's say, in uh, next year we when we run the course, there are a lot more stories to tell about what's so significant about those places, what's the happening, what's the history, what did Buddha do in those places, right? So this is another uh, further north of uh, Bukaya, about maybe about 50 kilometers away 
from uh, North Bugaya is Rajagaha. Okay, Rajagaha in Chinese is called Wang Seten. I, I think those of you who read Chinese Sutta, you know probably about Wang Seten. Uh, Rajagaha was a city, a capital city of Magadha back in Buddha's day. And in Magadha, uh, that is a very vibrant, it's probably like Singapore, you know, something like Singapore, whereby a lot of religion teacher actually congregate in uh, Rajagaha. Okay? So you read about all the, his meditation teacher, his first two meditation teacher live somewhere near uh, Rajagaha. Right? So first thing that Buddha uh, renounced, the first place that he went to is Rajagaha to seek for a uh, meditation teacher or teacher that can teach him the path to enlightenment. Right. So if you go to uh, India from the north, because we travel from the north onwards, uh, other than the, the Mount Everest mountain that you see, most of the places you see in India, in all parts of India, are flat land, flat all the way, until you reach Rajagaha, then you see a little bit of mountains, right? some mountains. Uh, not that tall, maybe the height of uh, maybe Bukitima Hill. It's quite easy for us to climb up to the top, maybe about an hour to 45 minutes to reach the top. So it's not that difficult. Right. So why Rajagaha? Because it's, there are a lot of mountains there. Okay? It's surrounded by five mountains. So you know, holy men love to go to stay in the mountain for some reasons. Right? We always see a lot of monastery built in mountains. Okay? This is a Sati, Sat, uh, Satapani cave. This is where the uh, Buddha also stayed there quite uh, frequently, right? one of his favorite places. At the foot of uh, Satapani, there is a hot spring. So if you read in the sutta that, oh, Buddha just finished his bath in the hot spring, and you actually literally find that, oh, that was the place that Buddha actually took his bath in the hot spring, at the foot of Satapani cave. Right? Satapani cave is also very important, one of the very important places. It's because the first, that was the first uh, uh, Buddhist council that was hold there, 500 uh, Arahan congregate in that spot and recite the Vinaya and the Sutta. And this is why the reason today we are able to read the Sutta and the Vinaya because of that particular event that happened. So when you go there, you go inside the cave, you sit there quiet, you feel somehow some kind of emotion actually come to you. So, oh, you're so thankful that that event actually happened. If not because of that event, the teaching of Buddha will be lost. Right. So this is how beautiful the place is. This is on the way up to the Satapani cave. Right. The, the sunrise. This is actually the sunrise. Okay. You can see that it's very mountainous. Okay. And of course, our most respected brother Tan here and the photographer. Uh, we climb up all the way. You, see, you can see that this is the wall. This is the ancient wall, the old ancient wall that built by uh, King Ajata Satu. Right? So basically, Rajagaha is surrounded by mountains, five mountains. So what he did was that he just built a wall to protect his city. Because in the ancient day, they also have war with uh, some of the neighboring uh, kingdoms as well. Right? So he built this wall and we climb all the way up from the, so this is one of the passes and we just climb all the way up and of course 
you're so happy that we are right at top. And once you get at top, you can see almost everything inside. Okay, and uh, this is the very famous uh, voucher pig in Rajagaha. Right, this is one of the old ancient temple that nothing left but just left with the uh, foundation. Okay, the building has been destroyed but left with the foundation. And this is one of the view that we see in uh, voucher pig. Okay, voucher pig. I think somehow people like to show this photograph. Instead, this one look like a voucher, but I, I cannot, I don't have that imagination, so I'm not sure. Okay, yeah, so the next place that we visited was uh, Nalanda. Nalanda is about 15 kilometers north of Rajagaha. Okay, uh, anybody know why Nalanda is so famous? Not because Brother Tan was from Nalanda. <laughs> okay. Uh, Nalanda was the birthplace of Venerable Sariputta. He came from that particular village. And, uh, and also later on, in the 4th century, they built the Nalanda Mahavihara, which is the famous, uh, the first university in the world, first Buddhist university in the world. It was the first, but it was destroyed in about 1200, the year 1200. Right? And this one, this particular one is the uh, Sariputta Stupa that can be found. Okay, so you go there, it's a very big compound. It's a very, very big compound. Uh, this is one of the <coughs> things that you see. Not all, and they also have excavated quite a lot of the monastery. There are, I think, about seven, eight, nine, or ten monasteries there, each individual monastery. And each of the monastery they have rooms and the cell. And I think if you read at the peak, there's about 10,000 people who stay in that monastery. This is how big the monastery is. It's not only a monastery, but it's also an educational institute. And it's very difficult to get into Nalanda University at that time. More difficult in getting into uh, like NUS, much more difficult. Right? The entry criteria is very, very tough. Okay? Uh, before you go in, I think that you need to pass certain tests whereby there's a guard at the door will ask you questions and all these things. Oral exam like, basically to test you how well versed you are. Only when you clear the, <coughs> the guard at the door, then you're allowed to admit into the university. So why is it the case so difficult? Because everybody wants to go there because that is the learning center, Buddhist learning center at that time in the uh, 5th, 6th, 7th century, right? Uh, the, one of the very famous monks that you've probably heard of is Xuan Zhang, eh? Xuan Zhang from China. He traveled all the way from China right, uh, just to go there and learn uh, the Dharma. Right? Thanks to all these monks also as well, they make aspiration to go there, wanting to learn the Dharma and bring the Dharma back to their home. So a lot of all these uh, great men, great monks, and because of them, we are able to listen to the Dharma, we are able to practice the Dharma also. Okay? And <coughs> because he had contributed a lot in this area, they built a, a Xuanzang a Memorial Hall in Nalanda itself. Okay? Okay, then next we head to further north uh, in Vesali. You can see this is, what happened here, this is a remain of a stupa. This is the base of the stupa. 
right? So when they excavate this part of the stupa, they found uh, some relics casket, but they have removed it uh, and then they put it in the Pragna Museum, right? So uh, we are very fortunate that we can go into the museum and pay respect to the remains of the Buddha, right? This is probably very authentic. So a lot of people say relics of Buddha. Sometimes they have a lot of exhibition relics of Buddha. So I was asking, I can't remember, I think I was asking Brother Tan, I say, how come there's so many relics, you know? And I think he mentioned that, oh, if you add up all the relics, uh, Buddha relics in the world, you probably can form a mountain. Okay, so that is uh, the amount of people claim that those are relics. But for this one, it's very authentic because it's actually from one of the original site. Okay, when we know that when Buddha passed away, uh, after his body was cremated, his body, uh, his remain was divided into eight different portions, right? This is one of the original eight portions. And they built a stupa. So this is the mock-up stupa, it's, it's, it's show how is it, and this is, we don't get to see uh, that uh, uh, the relics inside, but this is the case, the stone case, the, the that hold the relics, okay? <coughs> so from Vesali to Pragnan Vesali, then we go to Kasera Stupa, okay? Uh, this is one of the world largest, I think, uh, Brother Tan, correct me if I'm wrong, yeah, world largest Stupa today. This is how we take from far. And you can see that it's only partially excavated, not all, not fully yet. So when you go there, one of the very exciting things is that you can see that the archaeology today are still digging, digging and digging, and there's still a lot of things that they have not dug up yet. Right, this is the place, uh, one of the places, well, we are not sure where the Kalama live, but we know that the Kalama actually stays somewhere nearby. Right, uh, the Kalama Sutta could have in this particular location, but we are not sure, but somewhere near that location. Okay, so this is what I mean. You can see that there's still a lot of, uh, they have not fully excavated the whole thing yet. They're just slowly doing it bit by bit, partially because of uh, limited time, because one year they can only work like three, four months, right? because uh, the rain season too wet, the hot season too hot, the winter season is where the <coughs> the uh, so-called archaeologists. A lot of these archaeologists are Westerners. They go there three, four months in a year to do some excavation work, and then they come back again. And then, of course, they need funding also as well. Sometimes they run out of funds, so they cannot come. <coughs> right. So this is what happened. You can see a lot of excavation. You can see a little bit of bricks still sticking up. Okay. And of course, after that, you will go to these uh, places, the Paridibana Temple in Kusinaga. Right? So this is the temple itself, this is a temple. And inside the temple, you will see a reclined Buddha inside there. Okay? This is the temple. Okay? And behind the temple, they built a stupa. Okay? It's also quite a big place. Also. So beside this place, we also visited the uh, uh, the, the Buddha uh, commission site, the stupa, this is also one of the stupa area. Right. You can see it doesn't really look like a stupa anymore. It doesn't look like a very nice stupa because over the years, over the time, lack of maintenance, things have collapsed. Right. <coughs> and over there, you can also see a lot of uh, devotees 
right? And of course, not only just Stupa and all the places that we visit, sometimes we see a lot of the children very happy with us, wanting to take photographs. They love, the children love to take photographs with us. For some reason, they love to take photographs. Everywhere you go, the children photo, 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 you know? And of course, they're so happy, you know? And this, beside that, there's also beautiful sunset. The place is very beautiful, a lot of beautiful sunset. Uh, some of them even do jump shot, you know? So we have some fun also, not only just visit the, the places. So uh, I can recall almost every other day or something like that, I get to see the sunset or the sunrise. Very beautiful on the way traveling sometimes. Okay. And then uh, we moved into Nepal. Nepal, this is where <coughs> the Nepalese claim that the Buddha are Nepalese, not Indian. Okay. This is the uh, Maya Devi temple, right? So, of course, according to legend, Buddha's mother actually take a bath, right, before he, he uh, Buddha was born. So, <coughs> I, okay, and we can't really take any photograph inside there. These are places. Certain places we go, we cannot take photograph, so we can't really show you what is inside. Okay. And you can see that this one here, that is a Ashoka pillar also, on the side here. Okay, a lot of, uh, why is it mentioned that Ashoka pillar is a pillar? It's because a lot of places like, you know, Buddhism has disappeared from India for about 700 years, almost disappeared, right? So how do the archaeology or even scientists able to identify a lot of these sites? It's, a lot because of this great man, Asoka. He was the emperor about 200 years, 150 to 200 years after Buddha. And he was a Buddhist and he went round and then he built, uh, went down to pilgrimage site and started to erect a lot of uh, uh, this Asoka pillar. And <coughs> the pillar about 2,300 years still standing. This one's still standing tall. right? Some of them had broken into pieces but this one's still standing tall. So with that, the archaeology can actually identify that, oh, this is the place. Okay. Okay, then of course, next we move back to uh, uh, Sanak. So, with Brother Tan, one thing good is that he can actually explain, you know, the difference between these two Buddha images. When was the period? When was it built? How was it so different? You know, so a lot of things to learn. Because, over there, the guide, sometimes they, are, they will even tell you the wrong things. Or even sometimes the, they put out a little bit of a sign, they even tell you the wrong thing also as well. So these two are Buddha images. So you can see that over the years, few hundred years, uh, different, in different regions, the Buddha image look very, very differently. Okay? So this is, uh, uh, they found this in Sana. This is the similar, or exactly the same, Buddha image that we have here, that we have here, right? This is made in bronze. That one is made in sandstone. Okay, you can see uh, exactly the same. But no matter what, it cannot compare to the original serenity of the Buddha image. Okay, this is the Sanat Museum, and <coughs> of course, in the Sanat Museum, this is what you can find. The crown of the Asoka pillar. So this is one of the pillars that uh, 
this is sorry, this is one of the this is what they put on top of the Asoka pillar. And something surprised me was that this is made of marble. And up to today the, the polishing up to today is still shining. It's still shining, the the <coughs> it's still in a lot of nice condition. So below the pillar you can see the, the four animals, the the lion, the elephant, the bull and the horse, I think. Yeah. So there are four animals just below here. And then of course you can see the chaka, the wheel. Okay. So it's so beautiful done. I think you saw those uh, small those who went to Naranda saw a half a sized uh, replica of it. But when you see the original one, it's so beautiful. I took a lot of pictures of this. Okay. <coughs> and of course, we go to the uh, excavation site. This is the Damik Stupa, one of the tallest. right? And of course, this uh, Soka pillar has been broken into pieces. So just now you see the lion crown, the lion capital, is actually on top of this. And there are some inscriptions. So it took a while for the <coughs> scientists or the archaeologists to decipher it. So finally, they managed to decipher it and they are able to explain uh, where this uh, pillar comes from. Okay. So this is where the Buddha preached the second sermon, the Anatta Lakana Sutta, this, or the Sutta on Emptiness. And then this is the Dhamma uh, Rajika Stupa. You can see just now the stupa is still standing tall, but this one, what it left behind is just nothing but the base. Okay, so over the years, a lot of uh, all this site has been destroyed. In this particular case, uh, the ruler actually took out the bricks <coughs> and used it for building materials, uh, marketplace, the building material for marketplace in Sana. So. Imagine that uh, people who are not aware of it or people who is not Buddhist, they actually took out all these uh, very important monuments from a Buddhist and built other things. So this is what you see in India also as well. A lot of things are being built on top of Buddhist. Uh, there is even a stupa that they built something on top of a stupa. Or sometimes they build a buried ground, tombs, so that uh, Buddhists now you cannot really touch those areas because it's considered as holy to the Muslim, right? So there are a lot of things to see. Not only just see the bricks and wall, but you also see the state. And sometimes also remind us that uh, <coughs> if you don't practice well, the Dharma will be lost. And when Dharma is lost, this is what happened. This is physically what happened. But <coughs> the Dharma. This is also one way to remind us that Dharma can be lost if. We do not practice, we don't walk the path as well. Okay. Uh, what's so significant about this place? This is uh, the spot that considered to be the first preaching of the Buddha, the Namachaka Pavatana Sutta. This is where he teach to the five monks. Okay. That's the first time where the world heard the Dharma. Okay. And of course, I did mention that there are some monasteries, a lot of monasteries. These are cell of one of the monasteries. So the building has collapsed, but left with the bricks, the foundation. Okay, so based on that foundation, uh, scientists 
estimate that this probably a three, four story building at that time. Okay? So that was the height of Buddhism in India in those days. But what we left today is something like this in India. Okay? So that actually served as a very good reminder for me that we do not know whether, like Brother Tan said, I may come back next life again, but I'm not sure whether next life there will be Dharma for me to learn or not. So I have to practice well this life, learn as much as possible. Right? So this is my, uh, for personally, this is my biggest gain. Thank you very much, Brother Sister. Thank you. Brother Tan? Oh, uh, Tan is more knowledgeable to me, so I'll pass the questions back to him. So, uh, Bharatan has, uh, uh, we have requested Bharatan to lead a pilgrimage in 2016 December. Uh, the date has not been fixed yet, right? I think there will be limited places, about 30, 30 of us. Uh, uh, and I told him that, yeah, maybe before we go to pilgrimage, we, the prerequisite is that you have to go through a course. A course, okay? Uh, because we, sorry? Ah, I see, sister, just now you said, if I really need to know, Tian Kui Pai Liao, Tian Zap Si Pai Liao, my God, Tian, it's Pai Diao. So sometimes, a lot of times, we think that we we'll say that, oh, I really know it, I really know it, you know. Just like I mentioned earlier on, before I went, I do a lot of research. I, before I go, I thought, I really know it, you know. But then, every time I go there, eh, something different, I open my eyes again. And then I got all the recordings of uh, Brother Tan sharing, and as I listened to that again, oh, how come I didn't pick up this? Huh? Oh, how come I didn't know about this? And many times I learned, eh, I thought I know it, but a lot of times I don't know. So it's more like sharing. Uh, the, re the other reason is that because uh, we want to uh, prevent people to say, take this as a, a shopping trip or a tour, you know, tour. Not, we, are, we try to discourage tourists. We want to prepare ourselves mentally. So we, because this is the holy site we want to go to. So we want to prepare ourselves spiritually so we can come together, uh, practice together, meditation, a little bit of this, so that when you go there, there is a certain bond that everybody knows everybody well. And when you go there, it's more like a community to practice the Dharma, to walk the path. So that kind of idea is also not just learning the knowledge itself, but the friendship, the, the company. So uh, that was the intention behind it. This will be the so-called the field trip for us to learn more. And then of course, when you go on the ground, we walk the ground, there are a lot more things we can discover, we can see for ourselves. And when we come back, when we reflect back, a lot of things also for us to learn. Brother Tam, maybe you want to add something? Yeah. Q&A, any, any questions? Yeah. So the detail uh, will be announced later, the course will be detailed later. Uh, basically, maybe a little bit of course, I'm planning the course material. So uh, first thing is basically the history of uh, Buddhism in India. Right? Just I did mention that when, when you look at the, the Mahabodhi temple, Sorry?
You see, this is how, <coughs> when we go there, this is what we see. But like I say, we, didn't, we did not see what actually happened before. We don't get to see what was it before. Right? So this is, <coughs> we can realize that when we do a lot of research work, this is what it was when it was discovered. Right? How sad the state was. It was, and then we also learn about why Buddhism has declined to this state. So when you start to read a lot of literature, a lot of uh, uh, books or some article written by scholars, they have different, a lot of people say that, oh, because the Muslim came in and that's why Buddhism was destroyed. But actually, if you, un, if you read uh, a lot more, you realize that Buddhism was in a very sorry state even before Muslim came in. This is one of the factors, but there are other factors as well. Right. Even uh, Shen Sang record when he went to India in about 7th century, he recorded that in certain states, in certain areas, Buddhism was in a very sorry state at that time. Right. So, uh, any questions? Any more further questions? Okay, maybe I want to know, um, I was told that the Na Naga Pond is not at the actual place of the, yeah, at the Bodhi temple. So, because I went there, then the guide from there bring us to another place. So, did you all go there? Can you show us the place? Yeah, the, the <coughs> when you go to uh, uh, Mahabodhi temple, Actually, there's a sign showing you that, oh, first week Buddha spent here, second week Buddha spent here, third week Buddha spent here. So the Naga pond that she was mentioning was, I think, the fifth week or the third week, whereby uh, it was a very heavy downpour that's flooded, and then the Naga king actually uh, coiled around Buddha. So you see the five, if you see a statue of a snake with five heads and then coiled around Buddha, this is what she was mentioning. So you're mentioning that uh, whether that place was it in... Bogaya itself, uh, I mean, sorry, in a ma near the Bodhi temple itself or somewhere else? Uh, honestly, uh, yes, I like the expert. expert. <laughs> okay, uh, I'd like to thank Brother Yutong for the sharing and also all these slides. And uh, before I continue, I'd just like to answer Sister's question. The Buddha gained enlightenment uh, at a place we call Bodhgaya today. But there is no mention of Bodhgaya anywhere in the Pali or Sanskrit canons. For the simple reason that Bodhgaya is the modern name given by the British about 200 years ago. The Buddha gained enlightenment at a place called Uruvela. Uruvela means uh, uh, silvery, whitish sand. That was the bank of a special river called Naranjara. Naranjara River, Nilang means blue. Blue and the silvery sand bank in the evening is very, very attractive. Today also, it looks very attractive. So around that area, the Buddha gained enlightenment uh, spent uh, his first seven weeks before traveling to Sarnath. So the complex that today is Mahabodhi Temple 
does not contain all seven spots where the Buddha sent his fanfics. The whole area, about three and a half square kilometers, that is Uruvela, and that the pond has long disappeared. Yeah. That uh, is also disputable because it wasn't a Naga Konda, Konda means a pond. That place was called Muchalinda Rukha. In Pali, it means the Muchalinda tree. So it wasn't the, the legend, uh, the Naga king by the name of Muchalinda that, that provided shelter for the Buddha. It was the tree Muchalinda, it's a very common tree in India, Muchalinda tree that provided the shelter. Yeah. Now this is the reason why we must go on the pilgrimage uh, to India. It's actually not to know about the history of Buddhism there. Yeah. Uh, that is very easy. Yeah. Although uh, we, we go to India, the guides will usually tell us what is not history, uh, what is not factual, uh, quite fictitious and also legend. In India, they don't regard history with much importance. A lot of things are about legend. The more legendary, the better. Yeah. So B Buddhist history suffered the same treatment as the rest of uh, Indian uh, antiquity. However, when we go there, uh, what is important is the discovery of the teachings of the Buddha. And that is why at Nalanda we call the pilgrimage a pilgrimage. It is not a pilgrimage tour, but a pilgrimage. In Pali, we call it Dhamma Yatra. Yatra means a trip, a special trip taken in order for us to discover to discover what? To discover Dhamma. So that is the Dhamma Yatra. By going to a place, we say the Buddha was here. And how did he struggle? What was he struggling with? You know, what did he practice? What methods did he apply? What did he discover? What was his realization? All these should be made clear at every stage. So it's about the Dhamma that we discover. When I first went to India, um, also following another group, they brought us on 13 days, so many places. Those days, uh, the journey was very long. Today we have highways and good hotels and good restaurants. Those days, we pack food, you stop the bus, you have it by the roadside, and then, uh, of course, there were no toilets in India at that time. Male to the left, female to the right. <laughs> you know, monks behind the bus. <laughs> you know, it's quite tough. So, 11-hour journeys, 10-hour journeys, arrive at the place, spend 45 minutes only. Just go there, okay, kinkin, kinkin. You know, quickly, quickly, go. And then go around, worship, chanting, chanting, get on the bus and so on. So, that was pilgrimage. Actually, nothing. You know, we felt happy nonetheless because this is the exact spot the Buddha walked. He walked this direction down this river bank. When you are there, you feel very, very different. Yeah, you are connected with the land. Yeah. Mother India, we call it. So this is the special feeling that can arise in us. We call it an inspired feeling. Yeah? Something that 
wells from within. Sometimes it can be insightful as well. You know, for example, when you're there, because of the special setting, because of our presence there, because of the air, you know, the environment, and the visual cues, when the Dhamma is being preached, it sounds very different. You hear something you have never heard before. Anubhubesu tesu dhamesu. This Dhamma that I have heard many times in BF. So many people come and tell Four Noble Truths, Four Noble Truths. But when we are there exactly at that place, when we hear, what is the truth of Dukkha? Jati Pidukkha, Jara Pidukkha, Vyadi Pidukkha, Maranang Pidukkha. Immediately feel, oh, so happy. So every time when we go to India, at every place, sure people shed tears of joy. Some people, every place also. <laughs> we have a technical term for that. In Hokkien, it's called hampao. <laughs> every place also. <laughs> so the next time we go down the bus, we bring tissue, we put it in front. <laughs> so every time we say, this is how deeply some people may feel when we are in Mother India. Okay? So, uh, the whole concept of going on a pilgrimage is not go there, oh, I've done my duty, I come back, I'm a haji now. No, no. <laughs> it's, like that. it's not the hajj, it's not kewajiban, it's not something that you need to do in your life, but it is something that you must want to do in your life. You must will. You have the health, you have the opportunity to at least go once to experience uh, the sangwega, that, that kind of sense of urgency and happiness we can experience in the holy sites. The site itself, uh, contrary to what people believe, some people they go there as if they are a meter, they go there and say, oh, I feel the energy here, see? <laughs> <laughs> My, my toes and my everything is tingling. Oh, very good. They may have the special ability. But these places are actually quite mundane. When you go there, it's ruins. You go there, the stupa is broken. The pillar is broken. You know, there's nothing left of Buddhist India. Buddhism disappeared from India for 900 years. Ruin, nothing. You know? But at the height of its glory, you know, about a thousand over years ago, half of the world's population were Buddhist. You just take in India, you, the majority of Indians were Buddhist, you just take in China, and half of the world's population were Buddhist. And almost 80% of Southeast Asia is Buddhist. I shared this with our Malaysian friends. They were shocked last month. I was there in the north giving a seminar. I said, you know, Buddhism went from India, some to the north, some to the south, some came to Southeast Asia. Buddhism went into China in the late Han dynasty. The first dynasty was Qin, and that started in 221 BC, before Christ. After Qin, it was a very short-lived dynasty. It was the glorious Han dynasty. And in the middle of Han dynasty, Buddhism came in to Chang'an and Luoyang through Central Asia. But 130 years before Buddhism reached China, Buddhism arrived in Malaya, in Kedah. And we have a stupa to show for that. Carbon dated and also with many dating 
uh, what you call uh, devices dating back to the third century before Christ. So Buddhism had spread and was the majority religion of uh, many people throughout Asia. And uh, everywhere you go, there were Buddhist monasteries, you know, Buddhist uh, monks of many, many sects, many, many traditions. And those days, if you go to India, you cannot tell the difference just by looking at the monks wearing their robes. Who is Mahayana? Who is Hinayana? You know, today we don't have Hinayana, we only have Theravada, which is a new school. So when you look at all those monks, you cannot tell what school they belong. Today you can. When you look at the Chinese monk, you know, oh, this is Mahayana. When you look at the Tibetan, then you, oh, this is uh, Mahayana, Vajrayana monk. When you look at the Thai monk or Sri Lankan monk, you know this is Theravada. But those days, people like Xuanzang who came from China to India, they saw, they have to ask, what school do you belong to? Oh, I belong to Samitiya school. I belong to Dharma Guptaka. You know, I belong to Mahasangika. I belong to Stavativaran. Then only they know, oh, by the ropes, by the external looks of the temples and the stupas and the Buddha images, Xuanzang couldn't tell. So that was how similar it looked like. Yeah. So this is wonderful discovery when we are in India. So we know a little bit of uh, uh, history, we know a little bit of geography, we can experience traveling along the pathway that the Buddha took, you know, and see the vast expanse of India. And a very important thing, to see that part of India which the Buddha saw. Because there are certain parts of India in Bihar and Uttar Pradesh that has not changed in 3,000 years. But India is fast changing now. If you go another five years, it's like going to China today. You don't see China as it was. It's changing, rapidly modernizing, too fast. Those days, I remember a journey of uh, 10 hours, 11 hours. Today in India, it took only three and a half hours. So the suffering is gone. <laughs> yeah. To many, this is a good thing. Whoa, no suffering, go there. Those days, hotels, no good hotels. You, know, you probably abstain from bathing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some abstain from sleeping on the bed. <laughs> yeah. It's just inhospitable. Today, very comfortable, aircon, and it doesn't go on. They have generators. Those days, electricity only on for six hours a day. Now, they have generators even if the electricity is cut off. Buses are comfortable. Food is good. You don't suffer horrible uh, pain and disease and discomfort anymore nowadays. So the suffering is gone, but along with the suffering, a lot of opportunities for insight is gone. When you go there and fall sick, for example, 13 times to India, only three times I escaped not being sick. 10 times very, very uh, sick because of the long period I spent in India. And uh, once very serious, almost hospitalized in India. You know, that was truly insightful. When you're there and saying, I am subject to sickness. <laughs> <laughs> I am not free from sickness. I'm subject to death. I'm not free from death. It gives you special insight on Dhamma. That's wonderful. You know, you won't think of complaining no electricity, no hot water, uh, no Chinese food, 
<laughs> no highways, no toilets. You won't think of any of those things. When you're there, you're in tune with spirituality. And this is what makes pilgrimages pilgrimages. Otherwise, we better go on a, a trip to Europe. No. We go to India not to tour India. We go on a pilgrimage in order to discover the Dhamma. If we come back, we go, oh, I've been to Bugaya, I worship there under Bodhi tree, very shady, Jin Song. <laughs> then we gain nothing. Here, Botanical Garden also song. <laughs> yeah. We gain nothing. So we must go with the right company. Yeah? We must go with the right, uh, what you call, uh, Kalyanamita. Yeah? So in Nalanda, uh, very popular. Is, uh, we don't do pilgrimages very often. Once every two years. But every time when we open, the offer up, three, four hundred people uh, wants to sign up. Only 30 can go. So, um, this is how uh, many people cherish their opportunity. Many people go there, they don't get the, that, that kind of a, a feeling. They don't get that kind of a teaching. So, on a good pilgrimage, you have to get teaching, a lot of sharing every day. Yeah? And we have to see ourselves growing. Yeah? Just now, we mentioned, if we already know, then why must we go? But knowing... Uh, it's only one aspect of uh, growing. Correct? Knowing depends on what we know also. Right? So there are a lot of uh, other things which we need to experience. The insights, the difficulties, the challenges, and how with the spirit, with the right kind of effort, we can overcome those challenges. And these are the important things we need to experience. We call these opportunities for us to grow to learn and to grow. Right? So this I call Dhamma Yatra, the journey of discovery. Discovering what? Discovering the Dhamma. Yeah? And this makes a pilgrimage a pilgrimage. Okay? So I hope that is uh, clear on the purpose of going. And when we come back, we are a totally different uh, uh, person. Not externally, but something inside has changed. Yeah. It's like, Externally, come back st still more or less the same. Only two weeks there. But something inside clicked, and something inside has matured. And there is this settleness in us, very settled, uh, very calmly, uh, very aware of Dhamma. And these are the positive things that can emerge from undertaking a Dhamma Yatra. Right? So I've seen a lot of uh, people coming back not gaining much because uh, it wasn't very well thought about before they went. Yeah? And they say, oh, I've been to India, nothing. They said, nothing. Yeah? If I go Hong Kong, something. <laughs> if I go India, nothing. No shopping, no nice food, no... Because the, the mind is not tuned to Dhamma. The mind is habitually driven by food, comfort, pleasure, uh, entertainment, you know, not funny or not funny, uh, convenient or not convenient. This is how the mind is usually tuned to. But if the mind is tuned to Dhamma, I promise, I guarantee, 
this is going to happen. Something will click. If the mind is not tuned to Dhamma, nothing clicks. Okay. So in order for us to go to India, we don't need much. You need passport, visa, money. That's all. Just go. But what you get out of India, that is the question. Anyone can go to India. Anyone can go to Budgaya. What you get out of going, that is the key. Right? So this is the difference, the Dhamma Yatra. So today, probably I can share with everyone my own uh, experience of uh, going to, to India. And uh, although many times going there, I've been to my mother and uh, Yutong and so many uh, other Malaysians have been. Every time they come back, they will always remember. My mother was telling me yesterday of all the trips she has undertaken you know, around uh, the region and to Europe, the best was to India. Because although it was full of inconveniences, a lot of discomfort, but then she learned the most. She experienced the most. It was the most touching and inspiring trip. You know? Not the most convenient, but the most inspiring. So she was just sharing with me yesterday. You know? So I encourage everyone of you who haven't gone on the Hajj, <laughs> haven't gone on this uh, Dhammayatra, to at least experience, form your uh, Kalyanamitras to go together. And don't tune your mind to material comfort. Tune it to the Dhamma. Okay? So if you have any questions, practical questions also, you may ask. Um, you may share. Yeah. The documentary was the result of a trip we went in 2012. And uh, 2012, uh, uh, some, some people who were doing research uh, about Xuanzang uh, followed us. I allowed them to tag along, six of them to tag along uh, on the trip. And when they came back, they, they discovered um, uh, the lady that said, I've been to India five times prior on pilgrimage. She was very privileged. She had been there five times prior with many monks. But not once she understood things as clearly as that trip. So she proposed that we document the whole journey, Dhammayatra. And this is where I was uh, asked to go again reluctantly to, <laughs> to be filmed, yeah, uh, leading the tour and so on, with the, uh, with the condition that I shall never be uh, broadcast. Yeah. So they say it's quite tough to film you and not broadcast you. <laughs> Then what are we to show? And I say, show the Dhamma. How can you show the Dhamma? Through the narration. So the narration will take a long time because you have to write the whole uh, script and so on. So it will take another uh, nine months to, to a year for us to come up with a documentary. And after which to come up with other shorter documentaries and other uh, books as well. So the books will come out probably in 2017, 2018. There will be a series of them. Uh, as a result of this trip. Okay. Yes, yes. Yeah, thanks, uh, Brother Yutong, for sharing. I, I've got a historical question. I read sometime back uh, that there some archaeologists were doubting the, the, the year of birth of the, Buddha, of the Buddha, 600 years, and there's some controversy over that. 
So my question is that, is this a question of historical exactitude or has it got to do with how Dhamma might be affected by when he was born? Just, just, a, just a historical question. Yeah, his, uh, historical question, but uh, still important because many people thought if the Buddha were born earlier or later, it might affect uh, a lot of developments. Uh, but in actual fact, if we study history, um, some uh, historians were uh, what you call uh, proposing that the Buddha was born in the 5th century. Uh, some proposing that the Buddha was born in the 6th century. And uh, the Theravadins proposed that the Buddha was born in the early 7th century BC, before. So the accepted year for Buddhists, which we calculate our Buddhist calendar from, is now 623 before Christ. But that is highly improbable. Yeah? How do we uh, calculate the birth year of the Buddha? We can collaborate with the reign years of uh, Indian uh, Maharajas, Indian kings. Yeah? And uh, if we can ascertain the reign year of one Indian king, and then they usually would say, this is how many years after the Buddha, because they were mostly Buddhists by that time. Then we can ascertain the, uh, roughly which period the Buddha was born. If we study further in history, the time, the period where the Buddha was born, would it affect the Dhamma as we know today then? My answer is no, it will not affect the Dhamma. No. Why? Because the Dhamma is beyond time. The Dhamma is not tied to a particular political system, not tied to an economic period, not tied to a particular social order. The Dhamma is in that respect very universal. It is applicable here in modern day Singapore and Malaysia as the Buddha's time in India. So it is akaliko. So it doesn't affect the Dhamma at all. In fact, our Buddha was not even the first Buddha. You know, in, in his, what you call beyond history, there were, there were four other Buddhas, uh, three other Buddhas before Gautama. Yeah? Kakusanda, Konagamana, and Kasipa Buddha. And uh, what did the Buddha teach? The same four noble truths, noble eightfold path, and the twelve links of Paticca Sampada. It's the same essential education because their realization is the same. So whoever Buddha that came before Gotama and whoever that would come after Gotama, they would realize the same Dhamma. So it makes no sense when some Buddhists say, oh, I will be reborn uh, in a fortunate period to hear the Dhamma from Maitriya. So when I ask them, so what's the Dhamma Maitriya going to teach? Oh, four noble truths, eight noble path. <laughs> so what's the difference between that Dhamma and today's Gotama's Dhamma? Then they say, Silo bo, bo siang completely the same. So I say, why wait? Time and tide waits for no man or women. So therefore, we must not wait. Yeah? So Dhamma is the same. Yeah, doctor. Brother Danya, happy to see you again. Yes. Uh, I want to ask that, you know, if you read from the Buddha teaching and the story, how they say that the Buddha was born in India and the future Buddha will be born also in India. 
So if I can ask, what in the specific place that all the Buddha will be born in India? And uh, maybe my second one, uh, how do we compare the, these uh, places in India with uh, Borobudur in Indonesia? Is there any specific value for visiting Borobudur also? Uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, when you go to India, they will tell you very proudly that all Buddhas will be born in India. But the Nepalis disagree. <laughs> they say all Buddhas will be born from now on in Nepal. Yeah, but those days there were no Nepal. Who created Nepal? The British. At that time there was no India. Who created India? The British. Just like who created Singapore? British. <laughs> <laughs> Malaysia also? British. Yeah. Thanks to the British, they even gave us the name Bodhgaya. Earlier there was no Bodhgaya. Thanks to Stanford Raffles, he gave us the name Borobudur. That was given by Raffles. Original name, lost. But thanks to the British also, thanks to Alexander Cunningham, they excavated, excavated, and found a lot of all these ruins of temples. Earlier they didn't know these were Buddhists. They thought, well, maybe Hindu and so on. But when the British discovered images of Buddha and inscriptions, and one they deciphered the inscription, then the history of India starts on a new chapter. It was revealed then that the history of India was half of the time Buddhist, until it was lost. Nobody knew that. You see, so this is very interesting. Now. All Buddhas born in India. Now, in India, a lot of legends are there. They, they don't, be, they don't uh, place so much importance on the history and facts, but on myths, mythologies, and legends. So this is a belief that Indians have. And this has actually uh, came in to the mainstream Buddhist thinking also. So we now also, uh, many Buddhists believe that uh, Buddhas are always born in India. But the text which this is based on is actually a later text. You know, the Buddha himself did not mention that all Buddhas will be born in India. Right? But he did mention a few Buddhas that were born before him in and around the places he was. He was. So that gave us maybe the impression that all the Buddhas were born in India. The second question is Borobudur. How does that relate to Borobudur? In the pictures that Brother Yutong showed earlier, there was the biggest stupa in the world, that is Kesariya stupa. And that Kesariya stupa is very special uh, because around that stupa, there were two important occasions. One occasion was when the Buddha preached Kalama Sutta, the very famous Kalama Sutta, the discourse to the Kalamas. Yeah, we can find that in Anguttara Nikaya number three. The other famous uh, incident that happened there was the Buddha on the final journey from Vaisali to his final resting place, Kushinagara. He passed by that village of the Kalamas. And it was there that he turned back the Lichavis. The Lichavis were the people of Vesali. They had traveled with him 60 kilometers to the border already. That was the border town. And then at Padang Besar, or woodlands, you know, he, he, the Buddha turned back and said, okay, Singapore lang peng <laughs> uh, All you Singapore, go back to, to work. Tomorrow is Monday. He crossed the border, but in order to give them the comfort, 
Yeah. The Buddha presented his own arms bowl to the Lichavis. And there they made that big stupa to commemorate that occasion. The bowl itself was not put inside the stupa. It was too precious. The occasion, the place, they commemorate with that biggest Buddhist stupa in the world. And the bowl they brought back to Vaishali. But it was lost after the invasion. Yeah? So, Borobudur was modeled after that Kesharya stupa. Borobudur was big. In the Kesharya stupa also, the mandala is in the form of the mandala. Although round mandala, it's, the base is lotus-shaped. And there are Buddha images facing every direction. So this is how Borobudur was inspired and constructed. Uh, in the year, completed in the year 830 yeah, by the king uh, Samaratunga, yeah, by the king, uh, Malay king, a Buddhist Malay king Samaratunga in uh, Java. So this uh, Borobudur was left uh, undestroyed, whereas most of the monuments in India were destroyed. Yeah. And uh, as uh, Bayutong also mentioned, some of the stupas, because they are made of bricks, subsequent kings didn't know the significance of these stupas. They don't care anyway. So they just took these bricks to build bridges, markets, and uh, people from the village also took and built their barns, their houses, and so on. So systematically, they have been dismantled over a thousand years. So if you don't go now, then probably there's you know, very little uh, that we can see of India that has not changed for 3,000 years. If you go to rural India in Bihar and many places in Uttar Pradesh, things have remained more or less the same. The lifestyle, even the landscape has remained more or less the same. But now with the addition, you know, even the poorest village, people all take out their cell phones. <laughs> you know? Everyone has a cell phone now. So even the poorest village, they have cell phone connections. And so this is amazing India. They call it incredible India. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Any questions or comments? How many people have been to pilgrimage in India? How many people aspire to go? Yes. yes, in the last sutta, in the Mahaparinibbana sutta, in the Tiga Nikaya number 16, you can go back and read this sutta. The Buddha mentioned to Ananda, he said, in future, any monk, nun, layman, or laywoman were to visit these places that are associated with the Tathagata, they may gain in them some inspiration and uh, what you call uh, some insights. And uh, it was later added that if they are born, uh, if they die on the pilgrimage, then they will be born in a fortunate realm as well. So this is uh, added on later to give the, what you call the oomph. <laughs> so please don't go and die there. <laughs> yeah. 
this was added later, yeah? So um, there's no guarantee. <laughs> so it was mentioned in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. And you can experience the joy. When you read about it, what's so special? But if you go with a special group, uh, then it becomes very significant. And then when you reread all these suttas after you have been to those places where the Buddha preached, it gives you a very fresh insight into things. You know? the Buddha talked about horse carts, bullock carts, uh, grass cutters, uh, creepers, sal trees, rivers, you know. Um, a lot of rural settings the Buddha mentioned in the, in the sutras. In a modern context like Singapore, Malaysia, we cannot imagine, so it doesn't resonate with us. But once you go there, and if you remember those texts, you can say, Wow, sweet. You can see how it turns and so on. And uh, it's very special. That's why we have to prepare before we go. We cannot go there and not know all these things. It's good to know uh, enough, right? So read up on the suttas and so on and make aspiration to, to, to go there in order for us to get inspired. When we go there, it's not about getting knowledge. It's about getting insight already. So the knowledge we could have gotten here. But the insight, probably we need the inspiration, the touch of the place. Yes, uh, so as Brother Tan said, uh, the purpose of the course is also to read up some of the sutta also as well, so that when we go there, when we mention about the Diga Nikaya number 16, Mahaparidima Sutta, we know what is the content, what was being taught there, so that we don't have to explain what was said in this. Uh, and Brother Tan can spend more time in explaining the meanings on the spot, and then we can find more time for inspiration rather than time for understanding. Okay. Any more questions, uh, brother, sister? So it looks like all of you are very inspired to go. Oh. Thank you, brother, for your sharing. Uh, can I? Can you please also share about your experience of leading pre? Uh, rather, I don't know whether is it a pilgrimage or a tour to the Buddhist ruins at uh, Bujan Valley in Kerda. Yeah. Thank you. Um, we do not uh, organize very frequent uh, trips there, but if there are special groups like last April when the uh, Buddhist Fellowship uh, went to uh, Kedah, uh, to Bujang Valley for a special visit, uh, I would be very happy to explain. But I don't uh, organize trips there uh, because in Malaysia now it's very sensitive. Uh, anything that is pre-Malacca and especially you know, when they discover things they don't want to discover uh, they are very sensitive about it so we are very low-key we don't advertise we don't organize but we go <laughs> so we go, oh I just dropped by and we just dropped by so, so they were amazed uh, in August there about 7,000 people go there um, to visit the archaeological site. And every month, they have increase, increase. So uh, last week, I was also there. Two weeks ago, I was there. Um, CCTV from China had come to um, f 
filmed the place and also again reluctantly I was roped in to explain the, the significance of the place. And last year it was the Discovery Channel uh, under the history. But uh, the, the biggest catch of all will be National Geographic. And uh, they, they might come uh, in 2017. Yeah. So this is uh, Bujang Valley. And, uh, it's a very, very important um, place for the spread of Buddhism throughout Southeast Asia. Yeah. So this is in uh, Kedah, very near. It also pushes the history of uh, maritime Southeast Asia, Malaya and Singapore, back by a thousand years. With the discovery of such uh, ruins, uh, everything is pushed back by a thousand years. So this is a very significant uh, length of time in history, a thousand years. Yeah? Okay. Any questions on pilgrimage um, or things? Okay, brother uh, Tan, thanks for uh, informative <laughs> sharing. Um, it just occurred to me that you know uh, Palembang at that time was a significant place, and was that the name at that time, or it was later on? Palembang. Yeah, Palembang is the modern name. Uh, Chinese we call it Chugang. Chugang. Why Chugang? Chu means huge. Gang means harbor or port. It's a huge port. And uh, this is uh, corroborated with uh, uh, evidence that the wharves, just like uh, Pasir Panjang, you know, it's 15 kilometers long uh, along the Musi River. So Palembang was a very important entreport for the India-China trade. So the ships from Guangzhou and Quanzhou and Fujian would come directly to Palembang and then change ships and then transship to India, various parts of India, and later to even Tertia, Arabia, and from the Middle East to Europe, to Venice, to Rome, to Paris, and to London. So this was a very important uh, node in the East-West trade. In the past, it wasn't called Palembang. Yeah? Uh, the Chinese, for example, Yi Jing, who came to Palembang in the year 672 from Guangzhou. And again, in 686, the second time, he called it Boga. Boga. That place was called Boga. And the name, the kingdom, was called Sri Vijaya. It was from the Chinese that we knew there is such a place called Sri Vijaya. And the Europeans only found out about Sri Vijaya about 100 years ago. When they finally confirmed in 1918, there was a kingdom, Buddhist kingdom, an empire called Sri Vijaya. Only in 1918. So very interesting. We are still discovering the history of... Uh, Southeast Asia, Malaya, and uh, Indonesia. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of Buddhist places in Southeast Asia. Uh, mainly the remains are found on the island of Java, 
because of the material they use. They use lava stone. And stones can last for a thousand years, probably even longer. But in the Malaya, uh, we use laterite bricks, which can last about 500 years if they are very well baked. But for a 2,000 year ruin, chances are very slim that they are preserved in good condition. In Palembang and other places of Malaya, we use wood, which hardly lasts 300 years. So we don't have ruins left, you know, only the base. But the top, we use wood and atap. So all those have long disappeared, decayed. You know. But in Java, the whole thing is made of lava stone because it's plenty there and you can still see. Hundreds of Buddhist shrines and Hindu shrines in Java. Very inspiring. So I think with that, I'd like to uh, again, oh, just one more. Just to maybe to add what you say, <coughs> when you speak about the Buddhist country, I'm talking about the Asia here. So there is uh, Majapahit, that is where the Borobudur is. And <coughs> you mentioned about Sriwijaya, actually that went even bigger, but it's within, within Southeast Asia. Not only Indonesia, but I think Malaysia also covered there. But I like to add something which still exists here. They call it, in Bali, they call it Hindu. But I have a fr close friend. Seems to be the teaching, I mean, his knowledge, is quite uh, crossing with the Buddhism. But why you, uh, you are saying you're Hindu? No, we are, we're Hindu Buddha, they say. He is from Bali. I mean, not, not like me. He's more the, the origin, eh? the aborigin. So what do you think about the, he's saying very closely, strongly Hindu Buddha, he said. So I don't know uh, any connection with what you know about this. Yeah, just a brief one. I want to condense uh, 1,000 years into two minutes. <laughs> the Borobudur, as well as many of those uh, Buddhist uh, ruins which we see in Java and also in Sumatra, were actually built during the Sri Vijaya period. And the Sri Vijaya period started in the 7th century uh, and lasted up to the 13th century. But after the 11th century, the last 200 years, they were actually overshadowed by Javanese kingdoms. In the year 850, the Javanese threw out the Sumatrans from Tanah Jawa. And Javanese became uh, the lords of Jawa Island. It was a very significant uh, development in the history of Indonesia. And from there, they have the kingdoms of Airlangga and from there, Singosari and Kediri. Then only came Majapahit. So the Majapahit didn't build Borobudur and many of those uh, things. Majapahit were nominally Hindu. But in the case of Java and later Bali, we have to understand when they say they are Hindu, they go to Buddhist temples and worship because from the 8th century onwards, Buddha was considered one of the avatars of Vishnu. And they say, oh, Buddha, also one of our gods. Buddhism was reabsorbed into Hinduism after the 8th century reformation in India. So 
the Hindu kings or the Buddhist kings would go and patronize both Buddhist and Hindu temples. Even the Sri Vijayans themselves, they were Buddhist, but they built a lot of Hindu temples. So when Majapahit declined and disappeared, the remnants of Majapahit moved from East Java, jumped across the straits to the island of Bali. So from then on, Bali is the custodian of ancient Javanese tri uh, dual religion and tradition of Hindu Buddha. So if you go to Bali today, when there is a ceremony, very important religious occasion, you always have the uh, Hindu priest and the Buddhist monks to conduct the ceremony together. Usually they will end with the Buddhist monks reading the parita. So the beginning part is very, very interesting. They have pujas, they have gunungan, they have a lot of uh, dance, a lot of offerings, a lot of mantras, all very colorful. But they always end with the Buddhist mantra. So to complete the ceremony, a Buddhist monk must come and read the parita and selesai, semporna. It's already well done, well done. So the Buddhists always have the last word. <laughs> so you can do anything at the beginning. Buddhists always have the last word. And then in Hokkien we say, Ping An, yeah. Ping An. So I'd like to thank everyone for your contribution and uh, for your kind attention. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Brother Yu Tong. I think he was too inspired already going on the trip. So he wants to share this as much as uh, uh, you know, the experience that he had with uh, many more people. So I um, admire his uh, uh, initiative to do this. Uh, I want to say that it is not my uh, idea to organize a pilgrimage uh, for Singaporeans. But Brother Yutong has been very insistent. Every, <laughs> every two months he would ask me, uh, Bratan, can we have the dates? Right? Have have dates? <laughs> I say, I don't want to date you. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. okay. But I think things can be arranged. Yeah? So I, 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 I will have to see that things can be arranged. Yeah? If there is a desire, if there's a strong, uh, what you call, religious uh, desire, uh, it is our duty to support. Yeah. 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 Uh, sadhus.